From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, episode 15, for the 23rd of October, 2019. And here is your host, Tom Winifred. Hi, it is indeed Tom Winifred uh, with the 15th edition of Share Profits Radio, a free podcast uh, coming to you once a week from Wales, albeit only by 30 yards. If you watched Panorama on Monday, you would have seen both me, uh, one of my two cats, and also the Welsh hovel where this uh, podcast is recorded. It's not really a hovel, uh, as I think Panorama viewers now know. Uh, It's a very pretty old farmhouse, but I call it a hovel because it needs an awful lot of work. Uh, You got to see the good bits. Uh, The bad bits uh, were hidden well away from camera at the insistence of the missus. I start with uh, that program uh, because it missed out, in my views, three very important facts about Neil Woodford, which are important for all investors to understand. It's not the fault of the programme makers. They are a capable team. Uh, But it is a fault of the format. Uh, Panorama had only 30 minutes, and of that, about a quarter was dedicated to another fund manager, Mr. Denning, or rather ex-fund manager, following Panorama's expose. So we only had 22 and a half minutes on Woodford, and it's very hard to put the whole story about the rise and fall total fall and humiliation of the man who was perhaps Britain's best-known fund manager into just 22 and a half minutes. Uh, You can't really do it justice. We recorded six hours of film, and that was just me. Uh, You would, I think, need two or three hours to tell the story in full. I did a presentation at UK Investor, which you can see, uh, UK Investor April 2018, which you can see on this website. And that was about an hour long on Woodford. And that in itself only tells maybe about a third of the story. But it gave a what turned out to be very accurate summary of what he'd done wrong and of the problems that lay ahead and why his funds were bound to end in failure. But the programme didn't have the time. Moreover, it wasn't dealing with an audience of necessarily financially sophisticated uh, investors. My great-aunt Rosemary was watching. My stepbrother Tom. Now, Tom is no fool. He's deputy headmaster of a school somewhere near here. Uh, He's a maths teacher, so he knows a bit about numbers. But he said he only really understood about half of it. Uh, it's you have to appeal to people who are less smart than Tom, uh, less financially numerate than Tom, uh, and you have to ex- try and explain things to them. And that, of course, made it rather too simple. Uh, it made a few good points about Woodford. And, of course, my own input was absolutely brilliant. That goes without saying. But it missed out three very, very valuable lessons, which all investors need to take away. Firstly, it simply didn't show... Uh, the crookedness of some of the valuations within the Woodford funds, which have personally enriched Mr. Woodford, but which have screwed shareholders. For instance, it talked about the way that Mr. Woodford revalued his holding in a company called Benevolent AI, 
a company I personally think is worthless, uh, but which at one stage was valued at £1.4 billion, $2 billion. It wasn't that Woodford plucked those numbers from the air. It started out with an investment by Woodford valuing the company at 150 million sterling. That was in the summer of 2015. Four months later, uh, the valuation moved up to 1.15 billion. Uh, and in 2018, it moved up to 1.4 billion. Those numbers were not plucked from thin air. It's not as if Woodward was just able to wake up and say, oh, I think it's worth a bit more. Let's increase the value in our books. Although, actually, with a couple of other investments, uh, he did do exactly that. But in the case of Benevolent AI, uh, they came about because of funding rounds. Now, I did explain this in detail uh, to Panorama on tape, uh, but clearly they didn't have the time or they just thought it was a bit too complex. But uh, the key points are that the November 2015 uh, uh, revaluation, which took the company up from 150 million to 1.15 billion in the space of just four months, was not predicated on the company making any progress because, well, it hadn't. Uh, it was predicated on a terribly small funding round. Uh, which the money is 7 million quid. The money was provided by A, Neil Woodford, and B, a related party to the company. Uh, that small funding round was at a ludicrous valuation, but it allowed Woodford to increase the carrying value of the money which he'd invested in the earlier, much larger and material funding round at 150 million. There was a massive write-up in the carrying value of Benevolent AI, and that benefited Woodford personally in that uh, it meant that he had far larger management fees. Management fees for him were 0.65% a year of the funds under management. If the funds are bloated because the value of a company is written up, Woodford N is richer personally. Uh, you could say it benefited unit holders. Well, it would do it if you bought before the 150, uh, 1.15 billion valuation round. You saw the net asset value go up and you sold. Uh, but unfortunately, very few people will have realized what was going on. Very few people would have benefited from that. And there will be far more people who bought in at the higher net asset value, because when you invest in a unit trust, you buy or sell at net asset value after November 2015, they were disadvantaged by this inflated valuation. The final funding round, which is under question, is the 1.4 billion funding round. And again here, the only backers were A, Neil Woodford, and B, um, a party which was related to management and which put money in, but then promptly took it out by selling an asset back to Benevolent AI. So their net contribution was zero. Woodford put in a little bit more money, and then he got to write up the valuation of both his tiny investment at 1.15 billion and his initial investment at 150 million. More management fees for Woodford. Of course, reality has now struck home. Woodford can no longer put up any more money. Benevolent AI is running out of money. And its most recent funding round was at less than a billion. Frankly, it did jolly well to get it away at that valuation. I suspect that the next funding round for this company will never make a cent in free cash flow will be at way below that level.
there will be more and more pain for Woodford's investors uh, via write-downs. For Woodford himself, he's enjoyed those good years, 2015 through to 2018 through to 2019, with higher carrying values and therefore uh, increased management fees for him personally. I've commented on another case study uh, in today's Bearcast uh, on share profits, a company called Version. Version is another drug discovery company, guzzling cash, no chance of making a profit, and I think following news today, it is arguably almost insolvent. In uh, February, March of this year, the shares were trading at 72p and Woodford was heavily underwater. Versian was running out of money, uh, as it indeed is running out of money today, uh, and so Woodford put in $10 million. Since he was the only person who was able to prepare to back this crock of shit, uh, he was the only backer in town he could have set the price. And with the shares at 72.5p and not being that liquid, the sensible thing to do, what any other fund manager would have done, would have been to say, well, I'm the only funder in town, shall we call it 20p or 30p or 50p? Certainly a big discount to the current price. Uh, but that would have required, meant further write-downs in the carrying value of his large existing holdings in Versian. So instead, Woodford put more money in at 105p, a 50% premium to the current share price. A totally unjustifiable decision, particularly with the fact that the shares are now 8p and probably going to zero. Uh, it was a cracker's decision. Who benefited from that? Well, the principal beneficiary was Neil Woodford personally, uh, because he got to see the, instead of having to see the value of his existing sizable investment written down to the, uh, uh, to the then, uh, to the discounted share price pl placing price, he got to see it written up as the shares headed back towards 105p. People thought, Neil's paying a premium, he must know something. Uh, and therefore the shares, temporarily at least, went back into the 80s. And that was an increase in his net asset value and therefore more management fees for Neil. There are numerous cases here uh, which we have detailed uh, over on Share Profits since 2015 of where Neil Woodford has put money into companies at valuations which cannot be justified in any way, shape or form and which have benefited him personally in the form of higher management fees. And let's remember, Neil Woodford has probably taken out about 100 million quid in management fees from Woodford Investment Management, so don't feel too sorry for him that his career is over. Um, benefited him personally, but have ultimately screwed unit holders, and which were bound to screw unit holders. He had no need to put the money in at the higher valuations uh, uh, at Benevolent AI or at Versian or at Rutherford International or at many other companies. No need at all. That he did made him richer and has acted to the detriment of small investors. It was a failing of Panorama that it didn't show that in explicit detail. That, to me, is the crookedness of Neil Woodford. That's where I am. why I am prepared to use the word C. for The C word means criminal in this case. It's not, not that rude. That's why I am prepared to use those words, because time and time and time and time and time again, we have shown on share profits. We have shown him taking decisions which disadvantaged unit holders and advantaged him personally. Now, uh, maybe that, that is not against the law, but it damn well should be, shouldn't it? Surely it should be against the law. Surely he must have broken some rules. One must hope he gets slammed. 
My second regret about the Panorama programme is just a personal one. It's all very well having my face on there talking about events with hindsight and pointing out things that went wrong. Anyone could have done that. You know, even the dozy Deadwood Press have woken up to the fact that there was a few things wrong with the Neil Woodford Empire and are now reporting on them. I rather regret they didn't point out that I've actually been calling this out since 2015. A thousand articles, podcasts and videos later. Uh, we are not talking about this with hindsight. We are talking about it with foresight. We were able to point it out. And that brings us to the third uh, uh, real failing of the programme which was the way that the FCA was allowed to get off the hook. And this does have meaning and import for investors, not just in the Woodford Empire, but in all sorts of regulated and uh, quasi-regulated investments. The FCA was asleep at the wheel. It would have been possible to have saved the Woodford Empire from collapse. By 2017, uh, this website was explicitly warning of the bad things that Woodford was doing with regard to the valuations of investments within his portfolio, trades with related party funds, principally with Woodford Patient Capital Trust, uh, and uh, the uh, somewhat suspect nature of some of the companies that we that he had invested in. We were making that very clear, and we were also warning that the company was already by 2017 facing uh, redemptions on a fairly alarming rate, and that there was real scope for a liquidity crisis. I'm aware that the FCA uh, are, are, are readers and listeners to share profits, so they must have been aware of it. And if they weren't, then what the hell are they doing at their headquarters? As a regulator, surely they should have been aware of it. If we can discover it, me sitting in my hovel in Greece or my hovel in Wales, uh, Nigel Somerville taking time out from, from teaching young, young men uh, how to play the uh, trumpet or the trombone. Yes, that's his day job. Uh, and Cynical Bear from his, uh, his plush London apartment. If we're able to discover these things, surely the thousands of employees at the FCA uh, can discover them. At least could just learn how to read the fucking internet and discover them. But they didn't. Or they did. I don't know. We don't know uh, whether anyone at the FCA was ringing the alarm bells in 2017, as they could have done or should have done. But had they done something about it, had they known and had they acted, they could have saved investors money. It would have been a very simple conversation with Mr. Woodford. Neil, we note that about 20% of your fund, for that was the level in 2017, or arguably 25% of your fund, is invested in either unquoted entities or in listed companies where the size of your stake means that your position is illiquid. Yeah, you know, you can always sell a thousand quid's worth of shares in Versian or some of the other shit that he invested in, but if you own 25% of the company, no, your stake counts as being illiquid. You simply can't trade it out. We're worried about your liquidity risk, Mr. Woodford, and we would like you to reduce the percentage which is held in either unquoted or illiquid, that is to say stocks where you can't trade out of your position within two or three days, we'd like you to reduce your stake from, let's say, 25 or maybe even 30% down to under 10%. That way, we're not making any comments on your performance and on likely redemptions and any problems you have, Mr. Woodford. But that way, if let's say there's a market correction and there is a run on your unit trust as there is on every unit trust, if that happens, you'll be able to cope with it, and there'll be no chance of you being gated. 
And if Mr. Woodford refused, they could say, well, we've picked you up on some technical breach. Uh, we're going to have a full arrows inspection and we're going to publicise this in the papers and you'll be ruined. Do you want to play it our way, Neil, or do you want to play it your way? And you know what? Neil would have played it their way because you just can't argue with the FCA. Whether you're right or wrong, they are the people who have the power to destroy your business. And Neil would have done what he was told. And then even if his form, his, his, his funds had continued to underperform the market, which I believe they would have done, and even if he had faced redemption after redemption, he would have been able to meet all of those redemptions. And in a fairly orderly manner, the fund would never have been gated. The FCA could have prevented the collapse of the Woodford Empire if it had acted swiftly and in a hard way when those issues were apparent to us and apparent to readers of share profits and apparent even to those who attended the UK Investor Show. The FCA could have saved Neil Woodford had it acted in April 2018 in a strong way, but it didn't. It failed. And that, I'm afraid, uh, my friends, is a lesson for you. The FCA will not, uh, it seems unable to, protect investors from the Woodfords of this world. And it can't protect investors, really, from anything. I highlighted yesterday on uh, Bearcast uh, a remarkably smug interview that Mr. Willard of the FCA uh, gave with a, uh, a business journal, uh, P2P Finance News or something like that, uh, where he said uh, the FCA can't be held responsible for people losing money on investments if they stuck everything in a bank deposit, which was covered by the uh, F uh, Financial Services Compensation Scheme, then we could look after them. But everything else, well, you know, you, you can't be protected. Well, of course, people can't be protected from losing money on investments. You buy shares in BP or Shell or GlaxoSmithKline or Tesco, they may go up, they may go down. That is the nature of investments. All investments carry some measure of risk. But the regulator should be there to tackle people who are breaking the laws, either in spirit uh, as in the case of Mr. Woodford, uh, by having more than, more of his funds in illiquid investments than it should have been, or actually just breaking the law per se by you know doing things like lying to investors or committing fraud, the FCA should be there tackling them. Uh, instead, I've seen going to the FCA website, which I would advise you not to do for it is sheer torture. I've seen numerous papers they put out about workplace bullying, how the FCA is going to encourage the city to tackle global warming. Uh, how it's going to deal with issues of sexual harassment in the city. These are not within the FCA's remit. Uh, they are completely and utterly pointless. It might as well be putting out a paper on how it's going to make sure that Santa Claus arrives in every household this country on Christmas. Except, of course, Neil Woodford's. I think he's been a bad boy. Santa will be giving him a lump of coal. Uh, but he might as well put out a paper on Santa Claus. Uh, this is not what it should be there for. It should be there to protect investors by clamping down on wrongdoing. I'm reminded of uh, the interview I did with Gabriel Grego in uh, issue two, uh, uh, issue 12, I lie, of Share Profits Radio, where he talked about the role of bear raiders in nailing frauds of short sellers. If we can get frauds closed down when they're only small, then yes, some people will be hurt. Those who have invested in a fraud will lose all their money. But surely it's far better that we get frauds closed down when they are small uh, than when they have been allowed to carry on being frauds for much longer and have taken in a lot more money and are a lot bigger and lose a lot of money for a lot more people later on. 
That is the justification of uh, uh, the role of the short seller or indeed the investigative journalist like the team at Share Profits. We should nail things and get them closed down when they are small and when the damage is limited. If possible, we should alert people to issues, as we did with Woodford, so that the regulators can uh, take action to prevent the collapse uh, of slightly shaky investment propositions. The problem we have in the AIM market and in the London Stock Exchange and in financial services generally is that the FCA is too busy uh, putting out papers on how to tackle global warming and how to ensure that Santa Claus uh, uh, doesn't have too many carbon emissions as he travels around the planet this Christmas to actually tackle easy, easy to nail, small fraud, small lies. I lose count of the hundreds of times over the past uh, few years when we have exposed companies on the AIM casino for telling an outright lie. That may not be a big lie, but it is an outright lie. And if companies tell one lie, you kind of assume that they're telling a whole load more lies, which you can't uh, 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 prove to be lies at that point. Good companies don't need to tell lies. Any company that does tell a lie... Uh, just a slam dunk lie, two plus two equals five, a company that does tell a lie, well, it's defrauding investors because it is then creating the wrong share price uh, because people will buy into that lie, will buy the stock, the share price is at the wrong level. Now, the FCA could tackle them. I am reminded of the biggest fraud of the past uh, few years on the London market, that is, say, Quindell. We did an awful lot of work on Quindell. We were commended by the regulators at the FRC for our work, which caused them to widen their inquiry into the uh, uh, wholesale fraud that was occurring at this company. Time and time again, we tipped off the regulators at AIM Regulation and at the FCA about what was going on at Quindell. And they did absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Uh, belatedly, uh, they announced uh, in, when was it, uh, June 2014, uh, that they were starting an investigation. Then immediately they shut it down uh, when it emerged that the Serious Fraud Office already had an investigation. Uh, and it had, had been one underway for six months. The FCA had been provided with information years before that as had AIM regulation, and had chosen to do nothing about it. Uh, we know they chose to do nothing. Uh, the AIM regulation uh, made the mistake of CCing me on a couple of emails sent to the nomad to Quindell, um, challenging him about uh, blatant lies or frauds which the company had committed. The nomad said nothing to see here, and AIM regulation said, well, you're a fine fellow. We went to school with you. We buggered your brother at Eton. We're not going to do anything about it either. And that was the way that the fraud was allowed to carry on. The lesson you should take from Woodford is, yes, there are always risks with investments, but just because the FCA is regulating the system, it doesn't mean to say that you're safe, because the FCA is not up to the job. I'll come to the next and perhaps uh, 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 most important uh, lesson to hand from the Panorama programme, which it missed out in a while. Suffice to say, this uh, radio podcast is free. Uh, you don't pay to access it. I do wish you'd pay to access our work. Those thousand articles on Neil Woodford, we were so far ahead of the game. And it's why 
many frauds which we have uh, frauds or criminalities or overpromotes which we expose uh, uh, day in day out on share profits we are the, the muckrakers of the london financial services scheme uh, i hope that you will uh, uh, consider investing 5.99 a month in signing up to share profits if you're not doing so already so if you're a cheapskate sign up now Anyhow, this is brought to you for free. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Open Orphan PLC, a company on AIM, and I'm quite happy to take sponsorship from them because I believe in the company. I am a shareholder. I'm well ahead on my investment. The shares are 6.55p in the middle today, um, and uh, 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 I believe that the shares will go higher. Cathal Friel, the CEO of the company, was interviewed here on uh, edition eight of Share Profits Radio, and I gave a few thoughts on my understanding of the valuation in that podcast. Click onto that, and you can hear Cathal's dulcet Irish tones uh, on my own uh, uh, dulcet uh, uh, non-Irish tones, uh, and explaining the the investment case for Open Orphan. And if you want to find out more about the company, uh, follow us on Twitter at Open Orphan. Uh, as Oak and Orphan. Uh, that's very uh, good of them sponsor. Thank you very much for that. Now, back to the fourth thing which uh, the Panorama programme failed to expose about Woodford. That is, some folks still have their money at risk from Woodford. You have your money at risk if you are invested in one of the Hargreaves Lansdowne funds of funds. Hargreaves runs many of these funds. One of the scandals, one of the true scandals of the Woodford episode is that these funds started reducing their exposure to Woodford uh, in the early part of 2019. Uh, There are about five or six of them which still have a sizable exposure to the Woodford equity income and income focus funds, which are both now, of course, gated, so they can't get their money out. Uh, When the equity income fund is wound down, I would expect Uh, that folks would get about 2p out of 3, which they currently have in the current asset values, just under 3 billion. I expect the final return will be about 2 billion. So the Hargreaves Lansdowne funds will take a hit, uh, which is not reflected in their current asset value. Uh, If you have exposure to those funds, I would think it would be sensible to eliminate that exposure uh, by trading out uh, right now uh, and switching into better funds before they take the hit. I've already taken some hit on their Woodford exposure, but before they take the big hit, which will start in January when the funds start their distribution and their wind down. Uh, there's another reason not to be invested in the Hargreaves and Anstown Funds of Funds, and that is the stench at the heart of Hargreaves itself. From early this year, the funds were reducing their exposure to Woodford. Uh, they were only able to do this to redeem units because, uh, 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 and for Woodford to fund those units because there were still people who were putting new money into the Woodford funds. Uh, the biggest group of victims in this respect were retail clients of Hargreaves Lansdowne. And that is Hargreaves because Hargreaves Lansdowne continued to recommend uh, the Woodford funds, both equity income and income focus, as amongst the top 50 funds to buy. That they were doing so uh, and not recommending other far better performing funds like Terry Smith's funds, 
uh, when Terry was delivering a very good return for investors and Woodford was delivering a shocker, uh, is, of course, nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that Hargreaves earned far more in the way of commission from pushing people into Woodford than from pushing people into Funsmith. No, 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 that's just a coincidence. Uh, that doesn't read well for Hargreaves' Lansdowne, and looking at the multiple of earnings it trades on, uh, I would have thought uh, that uh, uh, there's no rush to buy its shares. What was worse, though, is the fact that it was able to redeem units from its own funds because its retail investors were being pushed not to redeem, but to actually buy more units. They were being pushed to do so by Hargreaves as a result of a committee at Hargreaves, which included the now disgraced Mark Dampier, uh, the promoter-in-chief of the Woodford Funds, but also included the folks who manage the Hargreaves managed funds. So with one hat on, they're part of a body, and there's no indication that they, d- d- they dissented from the body's collegiate view. Part of a body recommending retail investors buy when they themselves are using that buying power to sell uh, down their own exposure. It's a shocking conflict of interest, absolutely shocking. Uh, And Hargreaves Lansdowne, though it has apologised for its bad judgment, has not apologised for this uh, clear conflict of interest. Uh, There are two conflicts of interest at the heart of the Hargreaves Lansdowne model. One is the conflict between giving advice on which funds uh, retail clients should invest in and the level of remuneration it receives from the various funds. Uh, it is not clear to users of the Hargreaves Lansdowne platform that they are perhaps being encouraged to buy units in funds which pay a higher commission to Hargreaves Lansdowne as opposed to those which pay a lower level of commission to Hargreaves Lansdowne which may be better performers. That is a conflict of interest. It is not disclosed, in my view, in full to retail users of the Hargreaves Lansdowne platform. And it seems to me one uh, which is irreconcilable. I believe Hargreaves would do everyone a service by not recommending any funds at all and just allowing investors to make a a free and fair choice. The second conflict of interest, of course, is if your own funds are dumping a stock uh, or dumping an investment whilst you're telling your retail clients to buy. Uh, That is a conflict which I just can't see how you can get around. I would have thought at the very least those who sit on the investment committee cannot be charged with uh, recommending to retail investors, cannot be allowed to also be managing money in a discretionary way. But arguably, they're the biggest experts within Hargreaves Lansdowne. Uh, I wonder, could Hargreaves Lansdowne committee really put a savage knife into a particular unit trust if it was aware that telling people get out at all costs, if it was aware that its own managed funds had a position? How would they handle that conflict of interest? It strikes me that for Hargreaves, the right thing to do is not to try and separate these two operations via Chinese wall, but to uh, separate them completely, put them into two utterly distinct companies, utterly distinct buildings, utterly distinct management uh, uh, teams, maybe 
uh, spin off the in-house funds as a separate quoted entity so that shareholders in Hargreaves get shares in both. But you have to resolve this conflict of interest. Until Hargreaves uh, comes up with a sensible explanation about how it's going to resolve both of these conflicts of interest, to me, the shares are uninvestable. You cannot invest in a business where there are these real problems. Uh, it may result in boost to short-term profit. An awful lot of money Hargreaves earned out of Neil Woodford. Uh, but in the long run, if you are clearly disadvantaging your customers due to this conflict of interest, uh, that has to put a question mark on profitability. The other way that investors are still exposed to Woodford risk is via the Woodford patient capital vehicle. That is a, not a unit trust, so it can suffer no redemptions. It's a limited company. It has shares in issue, which you can buy and sell. It is on the main market of the London Stock Exchange. It used to be in the FTSE 250. I got an email this morning from a respected stockbroker wondering whether he should buy shares in Woodford Patient Capital Trust. After all, the shares now trade at just about 30p. The last stated net asset value is 63p. Clearly, uh, if you believe the net asset value of Woodford Patient Capital Trust, uh, this is a bargain. The problem is that the uh, net asset value is sheer fantasy. We published an analysis on uh, share profits last week, suggesting that net asset value could be as low as 3p. Uh, there's a margin of error in that. Uh, the biggest holding, or one of the biggest holdings, is a company called Oxford Nanopore. Neil Woodford uh, insisted uh, for some time that Oxford Nanopore was on the verge of a multi-billion pound uh, IPO. By insisting that the company would do an IPO, incidentally, he was able to classify it as a listed investment because it was going to do an IPO within 12 months, even though it was unlisted, thereby getting around the 10% limit on unlisted investments within a unit trust imposed by the FCA. The FCA fell for that one. He ticked the right box. Who cares? What about protecting investors? What about liquidity? Who gives the monkeys? Uh, Nanopore has come out the other day saying it's not going to do an IPO. Oh, well, that was another big whopper from uh, Neil Woodford, uh, but it's going to try and do another fundraise. It needs to, because it's running out of money at an alarming rate. Having talked about an IPO for many years, uh, I suspect that investors are getting a sense of ennui. Uh, the company's most recent results showed that revenues went up quite a lot, uh, and losses were reduced slightly. But that was only because the company capitalised costs. The underlying cash burn actually increased. Revenues through the roof, and you lose even more money. You burn even more cash. It's not a sustainable business model. Uh, and uh, the company is in desperate need of a fundraise. I suspect that the company will get a fundraise away at round about the current valuation. But if you're a shareholder in WPCT, since this is the relative blue chip within your portfolio, you need a massive uplift if you are going to have any hope of closing, uh, of justifying uh, that current NAV, because there's an awful lot of stocks within Woodford Patient Capital Trust which are simply going to go bust. So you need a big win here. But it looks like uh, the next funding round is going to be at roughly the current valuation, and there's no exit for Neil Woodford. I suspect uh, that there will be vultures uh, who will offer W to take WPCT stock off its hands, but at a discount to the current funding round. Don't look for any answers to your prayers with Oxford Nanopore. The real issue for Woodford Patient Capital Trust, apart from the fact the valuations are completely and utterly ropey, is the company has already written down its now from 96p uh, 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 earlier in the year to 63p. 
as a number of investments have either gone bust or have had to be devalued because they've been simply unable to get any new funding away at respectable levels, given that Woodford no longer has any cash to manage. And that process is going to continue. The real worry is that uh, the company is in breach, is in danger of breaching its banking covenants. Uh, the last we were told was that the gearing level was just a smidgen under the 20% level at which the banks get to call all of the shots. Uh, that was with the NAV at 65p. The stated NAV has now fallen to 63p. It only needs the stated NAV to get down to about 61p, and the company will, Keteris Paribus, breach its banking covenants. That would be bad news. Of course, the old uh, saying goes, if you owe the bank a quid, you're in trouble. If you owe the bank 113 million, which is what Woodford Patient Capital Trust owns its banks, it is the banks that are in trouble. Nonetheless, uh, they would, I think at that point, uh, do two things. Firstly, they would increase the fees, which they charge WPCT in a meaningful way, uh, which is going to only eat into the company's very limited uh, well, it's got no cash. It's going to eat into the no cash even more. Secondly, uh, they would insist on a pretty uh, aggressive sale of assets. And that's likely to see assets which are in the books at a quid sold for 50p or 30p or 20p, just as long as the banks get their money back. They don't care if that destroys NAV, uh, as it inevitably will. Uh, the key for them is to get their money backs. Panorama failed to mention that your money is still at risk with Woodford if you have a Hargreaves fund of funds investment or if you own shares in WPCT. The net asset value uh, of WPCT is completely illusory. I referred earlier to uh, the uh, case study of Versian, where Woodford put money in at 105p when he had no need to. He could have put in at 50p or 30p when the share price was 72.5p. And where now, with the stock at 8p, he's facing, uh, he's had the value of his holdings reduced dramatically. That's a listed company, so you see visibility there. Within the Woodford Patient Capital Trust portfolio, nearly everything is unlisted. And therefore, there are similar processes at work, as you see with Versian, across its portfolio of unlisted companies. Now that the sugar daddy, Mr. Woodford, no longer has any sugar, there is no one to refinance a raft of cash-guzzling enterprises. And therefore, you will, over the next few months, because there's an awful lot of them which are almost out of cash, you will, over the next few months, uh, see an awful lot of Versian-style meltdowns in the carrying value uh, reflected in the nav of uh, uh, Woodford Patient Capital Trust. You may not be seeing it yet, but it's bubbling beneath the surface, and it will happen. And when uh, the NAV goes below 61p, well, bing, bing, the alarm bells will be ringing in a big way. Uh, and you will, uh, uh, as the banks take whatever steps they deem appropriate, it's not going to end particularly well for investors. Right, that is almost it on Woodford today. I'm oh, sure I'll mention him over the next uh, 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 few weeks, uh, particularly as myself, Nigel Somerville and Cynical Bear, the journalists who produced those 1,000-plus articles on share profits since 2015, are in the final stages of, uh, fingers crossed, touch wood, uh, negotiating a book deal uh, uh, on The Great Man. One company which I have mentioned uh, a number of times on share profits over the past uh, weeks and months is a company on AIM called Bidstack. 
before we go to BizStack, I once again should thank the sponsor of this free podcast, and that is say Open Orphan PLC, a company where I am a loyal shareholder. The stock is 6.55p still, as it was 20 minutes ago. Uh, and I believe the shares are fundamentally cheap. It's up to you what you think. Uh, if you want to find out more about the company, uh, listen to the interview with its CEO, Cathal Friel, in Share Profits Radio 8, uh, or follow it on Twitter at Open Orphan. Uh, send Cathal a tweet at Open Orphan if you have any questions. Thank you to Cathal and Open Orphan for sponsoring this podcast. Back to Bidstack. Uh, Bidstack is quite possibly one of the most overvalued companies on the AIM casino. When I uh, question its valuation or point out the fact that it's lied to investors, um, I am attacked by all sorts of online trolls. He doesn't know what he's talking about. God, it was a failed fund manager. Yeah, I was. Eight, nine years ago now, but I was. Uh, guy works in a pizza shop. No, I, I bought a loss-making pizza restaurant, turned it around and sold it for profit. Not quite the same thing. Haven't been in a pizza stop for, for three or four years. Uh, all sorts of shit is thrown at me by people who insist they know better. You'd have thought after six years of share profits uh, and seven years of, of this sort of journalism, people would have learned their lesson. They always think they know better, whether it's Bidstack or whether it was Woodford or Quindell or Globo or Cupid or a whole litany of frauds uh, on the AIM casino, which I've exposed. I always get this thing, we know better. You know, we understand this company. Uh, we can tell you, you know, everything you need to know about this company. You just don't understand the business model. It's going to be different this time. Uh, you're just a failure. You're just jealous. You're jealous because the CEO has a lot of money and he's a lot richer than you. Uh, you're just uh, uh, jealous uh, with the, a bid stack. I was accused. Uh, you're only doing it because you're working for the Russians and the Israelis and then that's why you're trying to knock this company. Uh, you're just bitter and twisted. Uh, blah, blah, blah blah, 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 blah. You get it all. And, of course, they insist it will be different this time. It, it won't be with Bidstack. Uh, it is one of the most overvalued companies on AIM. The shares are now 22p. That values the company at 54 million quid. Uh, my gripe with this company is uh, its valuation, which seems to me to be crackers. If you're going to be valued at 54 million quid, you should, I think, within the next couple of years, be capable of doing uh, at least 5 million quid in free operating cash flow a year. I see no signs whatsoever that Bidstack will do that. So, if I'm right and the company doesn't do that, uh, then the stock is materially overvalued. If I'm wrong, well, five million free operating cash flow in a couple of years' time is probably at about the right share price now. So, uh, there's limited upside uh, 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 for people buying the stock. There's clear downside risk if I'm close to being right and they are close to being wrong. So, there's an issue about valuation. There is also an issue about the fact they uh, lied to investors. On the uh, this all comes back to a broker note written in September 2018 by the company's then broker, Peter House Corporate Finance. And I think many investors in Bidstack fail to understand the process of publishing a note on a small company by a broker, and we will revert to that in a second. That note forecast that the company would do first half 2019 revenues of 1.75 million. It would have uh, launched its product into four games, and we're told that the second half revenues would be 4.1 million. On 8th of August, the company's CEO did an interview with Justin the Clown over on Vox Markets. Uh, they're pretty soft interviews. 
Justin the Clown is, he never asks a tough question. If you've got a shit company and you want to promote it, I suggest you go and pay Vox Markets some money and Justin will ask you some very easy questions. And that is the business plan of Vox Markets. Welcome to it. Um, then, so the CEO turned up and was asked explicitly, was he comfortable with the forecasts for the first half made by Peter House Corporate Finance in that note, the only note to date published on Bidstack? And he said, yes, he was. And that he was still comfortable with second half uh, forecasts as well. This is August the 8th. The half year ends on June 30th. It is inconceivable uh, that the CEO did not have a good inkling of what half-year revenues would be. Uh, yet we, since then, on September 30th, had the publication of those half-year results, and we see that revenues were not 1.75 million. They weren't even close. Uh, they were one. Po- they were 26,000 quid. That wasn't from being embedded in any games. It was just test revenues. Uh, so he must have known that the company was not going to be embedded in four games, as predicted by the Peter House note, but in none. He would have known that by June 30, it was embedded in no games. And therefore, he would have known that the company didn't have a hope in hell of meeting those revenue forecasts. And yet he just lied. Uh, there is no two ways about it. He lied. He's comfortable with the forecast. No, uh, the forecast were way out of kilter. He's wrong. Uh, is the company going to achieve full-year numbers? Uh, the CEO suggests. Well, I don't think that's likely either. Now, I could be wrong, but we've had no definitive news of being embedded in games and specific launches. Uh, I can't remember how many uh, uh, games were forecast by Peter House for the full year. I think it was 24. There's no sign whatsoever the company's anywhere near that. And we are now coming towards the end of October. There are only two months left. Is it really plausible the company will hit fully forecast? Well, I accept it is just possible. It's going to have an awful lot of catching up to do since it started the period not on four but on zero, and there's no sign that it's on anything other than zero right now. Why does that matter? Well, it matters firstly at the cash level. Uh, the company burnt one and a half million quid in the first half of this year and ended the year with six million quid, thanks to money raised from other people. Uh, But the ramp up in its costs, uh, mainly hiring expensive staff, was something that only started in the first half and reached its peak of 34 employees at the end of H1. Uh, We're now told that there are around 50 employees in the building. Therefore, the cost base, the run rate of cost base in June was going to be much lower, much, much higher than it was at the start of the year. So that one and a half million cash burn doesn't indicate what the cash burn was in the month of June. And of course, the cash burn in the month of July, August, September, as the staff has gone up, but the revenues have yet to materialise, and October, but the revenues have yet to materialise, the cash burn will have been greater and greater still. So I think it would be imprudent to assume that the company will have uh, 4.5 million quid in the bank as of December 31st. Uh, I suggest that the number is likely to be less than three, and it could easily be less than two. There must therefore be a very real concern that if there is any further slippage in uh, 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 forecasts, that the company will not uh, uh, be have sufficient funds to get it through to profitability. And if that happens, it's going to be painful, because one of the other things which should be a red flag about Bidstack is that there are no institutional shareholders. At its peak, this company was capitalised at something like 70, 75 million quid. 
And at that level, you should be getting some small fund managers and people like Mighton or, or that sort of level uh, nibbling and starting to take a stake. But there is no institutional backing here. Uh, why does that matter? Well, it matters because if you could try and do your placing and you've got no institutions on board, you either have to start convincing them to do uh, to back you, and if you have failed to meet your forecasts and you're running out of cash, they're not necessarily going to be that receptive. Uh, uh, or you have to find high net worth individuals. It is jolly hard. Now, it's all very well saying that the company raised six million quid in the first half of the year, but it did that at... I think seven and a half p, or is it six p? It did it at much lower levels. Uh, if the company's gone all the way up and then, like the grand old Duke of New York, marched all the way down in terms of share price and is running out of money and has missed its forecast, not delivered on the business plan it said at the time of its initial RTO and fundraising, then that fundraise process can be rather mucky. It may well involve bucket shops who will demand a big discount to the prevailing share price, etc., etc. That would be a second concern. Now, the point about the broker's note is people have said that Peter House is a flea-bit little broker. Uh, I think that's probably a little harsh on Peter House, but I'm not going to pretend that they are exactly right up there with Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. However, those who dismiss the research by Peter House, uh, I think, make a grave error. It is not as if Peter House, or indeed any broker, goes, any small cap analyst, goes away and writes a note and comes up with its forecast for the number of games embedded or the number of revenues or the gross margin, or etc. They do not come up with those forecasts by themselves. Uh, what tends to happen? And I speak here as someone who has been a small cap analyst, so I do understand how the process works, uh, is that you will write your note and you will start doing your modelling and your forecast, and you will talk to the company. Now, the company is not allowed to give you forecasts. It's not allowed to say, look, here's our business plan. This is what we're going to do. That would be naughty. It would be uh, against the law. However, they are allowed to give you guidance, and therefore you have an iterative process. I'm going to run with a model whereby you're embedded in four games at the end of H1 and 24 by the end of H2. Does that sound about right to you? Mm, okay, yeah, that sounds about right. Or you could say, oh, we're going to go with six at the end of H1 and 30 H2. Oh, that sounds a bit high. Well, how about three and 20? Oh, no, higher, higher. It's like Brucey. Higher, higher. Oh, 428, 424. Oh, yeah, okay, that's about right. So the gross margin is going to be 30%. No, higher, higher. Oh, 50, lower, lower, 40. Oh, you could say that. I couldn't possibly comment. And your uh, your PLC costs, they're going to be X million. Uh, maybe, you know, we've, we've got corporate hospitality. Yeah, X million plus 10%. Well, you might say that I couldn't possibly comment, and thereby you present a whole set of comments, a whole set of forecasts. Uh, the forecasts are not coming from the company. They are your own. But, of course, in the real world, they come from the company. I don't believe that Lucy Williams or whoever penned that note round of Peter House Corporate Finance came up with those numbers uh, by a process of uh, osmosis or just making them up or sticking a finger in the air and uh, hoping uh, they came up with those numbers because they talked to the company and they got guidance from the company. That is always the way with small cap analysis. You can produce your spreadsheets, but you do so with explicit guidance from the company. Therefore, if 
the company is going to miss their forecast. It is no point saying, I blame the broker, they were too optimistic. No, if they're missing their forecast, it's because the guidance they gave to the broker uh, is uh, was wrong. Now, there is a defense here, and it's one put by my good friend, uh, Anthony Laker, my, my stockbroker, who is someone who's been around even longer than I have. Dinosaur. Anyhow, dinosaur. Uh, and Mr. Laker would have say, but back in September 2018, Bidstack was essentially a startup, and therefore it could have had no idea of the forecasts uh, of, of what it was going to deliver in terms of rollout. I think he's right. Uh, but if that's the case, then the company shouldn't be put, making up numbers and saying, this is our assumption. It should be saying, at this stage, we are not, uh, we have suggested to our broker, the esteemed house uh, of Peter House Corporate Finance, that they don't put any forecasts into the market. That would be the responsible way to do it. We're not going to put forecasts into the market because whilst we have great confidence in our business plan, we can't guarantee how quickly it will be delivered, how quickly our great technology will be taken up by other players. And therefore, whilst we can have a note describing the company, we are not going to put out a note uh, with any uh, 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 given forecasts. That would have been the responsible way. But of course, uh, Bidstack was a financial promotion. It needed to raise money. It had warrants. It wanted people exercising, yada, yada, yada. So it chose to give Peter House a steer with those forecasts. That was, in my view, irresponsible. Once you've done that, uh, then if you miss those forecasts by a country mile, which clearly uh, Bidstack has, you need to fess up to it. You don't lie to investors with a podcast via Justin the Clown. Now, I know that Justin the Clown is not a regulated channel. It is not an RNS system, although some people seem to think that it is. It is not somewhere where you are meant to announce news. However, that doesn't get you off the hook when it comes to telling what was a slam dunk lie. Uh, uh, whether uh, you communicate via a regulated channel or, or just via just in the clown's podcast, uh, uh, that doesn't change the rules. You can't lie about things like that. The CEO of Bidstack knew he wasn't going to hit first year for uh, first half forecast as, as, as in the Peter House note. And he just lied about it. That is wrong. And that, to me, just makes the stock uninvestable. I'm worried that the company is going to run out of money. Uh, I think the valuation is absolutely crackers. Uh, I think the company probably, almost certainly, will have a full year lack of revenues and consequently inflated losses warning. Uh, uh, those are three fundamental reasons not to own the shares. But there is the overriding one there. Companies that lie to investors are not ones you should ever invest in. There are so many companies out there. Why not stick to companies which tell the truth or even come close to telling the truth? Because, you know, good companies don't need to tell porky pies. It is only bad companies that tell porky pies. That's a golden rule of the stock market. Good companies don't because sometimes you get punished. Even the FCA might sometimes punish someone for telling a lie. So why take the risk unless you have to? Uh, companies that behave in this way are uninvestable. Put your tin hat on, Tom. Prepare for some incoming on that one.
I hope you've enjoyed this rather shorter edition of Share Profits Radio. I will be back with another show in a week's time. If you've enjoyed this, then uh, don't be a cheapskate. Sign up for Share Profits, $5.99, and you get a better cast from me every day. Some days, like yesterday, you get two. Uh, and you get loads of other uh, explosive content as well, exposing scandals, frauds, and promotes and lies on the AIM Casino and the main market London Stock Exchange. So don't be a cheapskate. Sign up for Share Profits. If you're a cheapskate, I'll speak to you in a week's time. If you're a sensible, prudent investor who wants to learn more, I will speak to you tomorrow. Goodbye.